Hello and welcome to episode 50 of the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast, The Cockerel and the Cobra. Over the past 49 episodes, we've slowly and gradually approached the endgame of Yugoslavia, and in this episode, we've properly come across the first name in football who'll be with us for the greatest achievement in Yugoslav club football, and one who will be with us beyond the breakup of Yugoslavia also. While we've mentioned Pixie in passing before, his real impact on a wider scale comes later on in the decade, given he was, until 1986, part of a Radniki niche side that was declining around his rise. Instead, the name we meet today is someone who would make their impact straight away, in a manner that would propel him to immediate stardom. That player is Darko Panchev. In the 1983-84 season, while Panchev would reach the top, one other player was also just starting his footballing journey. And that would be the ever-combustible Dejan Savicevic at Budapest. The pieces of post-war Yugoslav football were already beginning to fall into place. While Panchev would spend this season rising in Skopje, Hajduk Spit would take part in perhaps the most famous of all European runs, one that would include an all-Yugoslav tie and con conclude in perhaps one of the most infamous fan incursions of the decade. And, all the while, the slow moves towards Yugoslavia's unravelling will continue, and the first steps towards prominence for a Serbian child of war named Slobodan Milosevic would begin. So yes, while the timeline of our podcast reaches an important milestone in having its 50th timeline episode, history has served up an absolutely bumper episode of goings-on for us to mark it with. To begin, we'll go into the non-football events because they go across into events that happened within the season covered in our last episode, before Christmas. More specifically, it's going to be the first mention in the podcast for erections. Don't worry. It's not time yet to sex up the podcast. Instead, it's time to talk about a little Slovenian band by the name of Leibach. Leibach, named after the Habsburg name for Ljubljana, were formed in 1980 in Trebovje, a mining town in Slovenia. They were, at the time, a mix between industrial metal and avant-garde art, whereas nowadays they produce industrial versions of the sound of music. They used homemade instruments and, during gigs, set off military-grade smoke bombs rather than use dry ice. They were raucous and subject to some nationalism. In December 1982, original frontman Tomas Hoshnik committed a nationalist-themed ritual suicide. After a few months off, they would resume performing in April 1983 and immediately cause trouble. At a concert in Zagreb, they would run in the background of the stage two films simultaneously. One, a Yugoslav film named Revolucija Sitraja, or The Revolution is Still Going On in English, and the other film would be hardcore pornography. The concert would eventually be stopped by police after a picture of Tito and an erect penis was shown at the same time. A couple of months later, after the concert hit the news, the band were prohibited from performing in public and banned even from using the, their name Liebach, 
something they wouldn't reclaim until 1985, after they had both become very successful and been staging underground concerts as part of the NSK Art Collective. While Lieback were just one band, they were merely the largest to find themselves at the forefront of protest. Much of the emerging culture was going to be disrespectful to the state, and things that Lieback brought in, such as the use of fascist imagery, would begin to permeate through even older culture, such as Yugoslavia's most popular band at the time, Bielo Dugne. While dissent was growing in culture and in academia in Slovenia, issues were beginning in Bosnia as well, thanks to an ageing lawyer by the name of Alija Izetbegovic. Izetbegovic had been part of Islamic groups for a long time and published a document called the Islamic Declaration. It was, in spirit, a work on how Islam could adapt itself with the growth of Western principles and how an Islamic state allied with those could work. While entirely theoretical, it was also difficult to not think that it was something that Izet Begovic wanted to be applied to Yugoslavia itself. He and 12 other activists would be on trial in the summer of 83, and Izet Begovic would be sentenced to 14 years in prison as the author of it. After international outcry, he would eventually be pardoned, but the whole affair had opened up some uncomfortable issues and the fear of Islamic rebellion would be used as a stick to beat Bosnia with for the next decade and a half. And it would be one that Izet Begovic himself would exacerbate in the future. One other tidbit is worth noting at this point. Listeners may well remember a couple of episodes ago when Maribor were punted out of the second league after their black fund was uncovered. One of the aspects we didn't touch upon at that time was the aftermath, which we're going to look at now, because it differed from region to region. With a major regional club being caught match-fixing and doing it on quite an industrial level, there was an impetus to clean the game up. You would expect, but there wasn't. The FA themselves weren't really very interested, and what happened instead was a regional clear-up. Clubs in Slovenia and Croatia were investigated and raided. The impact was most notable in Slovenia where clubs in the Republic League, which I promise we will get to when Slovenia gets independence because the Republic Leagues, while interesting in their own right, vary quite a bit from region to region. Um, but in this season there were deducted points because of what was found. What had been found, more or less uniformly where the authorities looked, was little evidence of match fixing because generally, if you know there's a crackdown coming, you tend to shred or burn that sort of stuff, but plenty of financial irregularities and of the books being cooked across the northern regions. However, this forensic crackdown didn't spread to the rest of the nation. And in a couple of seasons time, the inevitable result of that happening, when a corruption crackdown doesn't actually look at all that much, will come about. And finally, before we get to the football, it's time to take a very quick detour into the land of basketball, just to bring in the name of someone who's about to become really quite important. This period in the early to mid 80s was the early stages of the golden age of the Zagreb club, KK Sibona, who in the middle of the decade would have a side winning continental silverware. 
The man in the background was the political figurehead of the club, was someone by the name of Slavko Schieber. Schieber is a mightily interesting figure in his own right, who we will get to in more detail in a couple of episodes. But at this point, he's perhaps best thought of as someone who had bounced up the socialist hierarchy by always knowing who to keep on the right side of. And Sibona were beneficiaries of the fact that he could call in favours from all over. His exploits were getting attention in football. And come 1985, he'll find himself at the top of the FA and presiding over a period that would begin with massive controversy, including changing the face of Yugoslav football forever, and end with the introduction of perhaps the worst idea ever in football. And hey, even when that was finished, he'll come here with us in the independence period to wildly irritate Franjo Tudjman. But right now, Scheiber was watching and getting ideas on how to modernise and improve football, all the while presiding over what was one of the most successful sporting teams in the nation. So... With an important figure introduced in the State of the Nation Address, it's time to actually talk about the action of the park, because while we've just come from a season with a three-horse race, this season up the ante more and had a four-horse race. To begin with the club that weren't part of it, Dinamo's renaissance was well and truly over. Chiro Bladevich left the club, essentially citing that he hadn't mentally recovered from failing to retain the title and felt that he had lost the dressing room a dressing room that would be swiftly torn apart by players going on military service, injury and departures to the West. Relegation for them was only averted on the last day of the season, courtesy of defeating Hajduk. Speaking of relegation, Shelik would be going straight back down and they would be joined by Olympia Ljubljana. Iskra Bugoino and Suceska will replace them for the following season. Pristina, the other club that came up this season with Shelik, finished an impressive 8th under the former Sarajevo boss Fuad Muzurovic and, unusually for a side at this time, focused on winning games. Their three draws were the lowest in the league, with Hajduk in 5th managing 15 draws. Keep that sort of number in mind for a couple of seasons' time. <laughs> All of this leaves our side, our four sides in our four-horse race. Representing not Belgrade, would be Rijeka, under the management of Josip Skobla, and Zelyesnika, under Avicja Osim, who was in his fifth season at the club, but only his second doing the job on his own. In Belgrade, Milos Milutinovic was looking to retain the title at Partizan, and Gojko Zec was looking to make a comeback at Svjernitsvjesta, having not had a job for five years since leaving them after taking over from Milan Miljanic. And that's all before we mention Hajduk, who would lead into the winter before dropping away and enduring a win, a run of winning only three of their last 12 games, while the team that would become champions would more or less do the reverse. That side wouldn't be Rijeka, who endured a poor run of their own around the winter break before finishing the season on fire, going 12 unbeaten. Of the sides around them, only Siesta would manage to best them head-to-head all season. However, a penultimate round draw to Hajduk would take both of them out of contention at that point. Zelyesnikar's story would be similar, with a draw away to Budishnost doing for their challenge in the third to last round, even if they did win out and, in doing so, would decide the title once and for all. Because on that last day, only two sides could win the title, Sviesta and Partizan, and each had to play a Sarajevo club. 
Both of our great giants had had similar seasons, relatively disappointing autumns followed by impressive springs, and both would slip up on the final day. Sviesta would drop points away to Sarajevo in a two-all draw, but Partizan would lose to Zelyaznikal on the final day to make Sviesta's dropping of points immaterial. Sviesta were champions by two points, and they would have a Macedonian to thank. Not Panchev at this point, of course. Sviesta's Macedonian would be none other than Milko Jarovsky, a youth product of Tetex. Jarovsky had been brought to Belgrade in his mid-teens and made an impact slowly at the club, with a good scoring record in his first three full seasons at the club. 83-84 would be the first where he would be playing near enough every game, and he delivered, scoring just under a goal every other game to top score for the side and become a firm fan favourite. Well... For now at least. But the other Macedonian striker was making an even greater name for himself. At 18, Darko Panchev was playing his first ever season of senior football, and he began as he meant to go on. Vardal were in many eyes relegation fodder. They had, after all, spent plenty of time yo-yoing between the top and the second tier. Panchev had given a small preview of the prior season, playing four games and scoring three. But this time round he would get the full season and deliver 19 in 31 to near single-handedly keep Vardar in the first league. In a year or so, he would be joined at the club by a new manager in former player Andon Dunchevsky, as Vardar would begin to assemble a team around their new young star, who would swiftly become known as the Cobra. When it came to the cup, the final and the eventual winners had a very familiar look to them. It was Hajduk against Chester and it would be Hajduk, who had more or less owned the trophy for the entire 70s, who had come out on top with their first trophy since the move to Poliud. The win was secured with a 2-1 first leg win at Poliud, aided by an Olympic goal from Blas Siskevich, while the second leg at the Maracanã would end goalless. The tale of Hajduk's season this time isn't quite done there, but we'll come back to them in a bit. Firstly, it's time to check on how champions Partizan did in the European Cup. And the answer was pretty much the same as we'd saw the season before. Spanking Norwegian opposition in the first round, this time Viking, before coming unstuck against decent opposition in the following round. The decent opposition on this occasion were East Germans' BFC Dinamo. It would, of course, be a controversial edition of the tournament in general, given the wide accusations that Roma only reached the final by bribing the referee of their semi-final game against Dundee United. Dinamo, as cup holders, meanwhile, flopped in the Cup Winners' Cup, being knocked out by Portuguese opposition for the second season in a row. This time, eventual runners-up Porto, doing the deed on away goals in the first round. All of which leaves us with the UEFA Cup, and Yugoslavia's three representatives with the coefficient having risen enough to allow that third place. First to depart would be Zvezda, losing 4-2 to Verona in the first round, in which they would lose both legs 2-1. Second to depart would be Ratniki Nish, who would at least get through the first round, a 5-1 win over St. Gallen of Switzerland, featuring the first European goal of a certain Dragan Stojkovic. They would make their way through the second round also against Czech opposition in Inter Bratislava, battering them 4-0 at Kaya to go through 6-3 in aggregate before falling in the third round too. It's time to go back to Hajduk. There was little sign of what was to come this season early, 
as they struggled past Universitaire Craiova on penalties in the first round, and they would continue their campaign in the East once more in the second round, taking on Honved. After dropping the first leg 3-2 in Hungary, they would be saved by Dusan Pesic. He would grab one of Hajduk's two in Hungary before going on to score a double at Poljud, as Hajduk eventually eased through 5-3 in aggregate. The result was, and that's all Yugoslavia time, Hajduk split versus Ratniki Nish. On the 2nd of October, Hajduk had travelled down to Nice in the league and lost 1-0 in front of 8,000. In fact, Radnik and Nish would win both league encounters between the sides in this 83-84 season. Come the 23rd of November, however, and the first leg of their European tie in a snowy niche, Hajduk managed a 2-0 win in front of 20,000 thanks to goals from Zlatko Vujovic heading home from a corner and Zoran Vulic with a hammer of a strike from the edge of the box. Two weeks later, and Radnik and Nish had it all to do. They would push hard for an hour before Zlatko Vujovic again would decide things. First, with a low strike on an angle, and the second, a similar strike from the opposite side, given a rather large assist from Ibura, which is the name for the often extreme winds that can hit the city from time to time. In this case, the winds were so strong they held up the goalkeeper's throwout, yes, not even a kick, to give Vujovic space to waltz in and secure a 2 0 win on the night and 4 0 on aggregate. It took Hajduk to the quarters, a stage at which they've fallen so often before in European competition, and this time, to a tie against Sparta Prague. In the first leg in Prague, Hajduk would lose 1-0 after an Ivan Hasek goal just after half-time. With the tie very much alive going to Poljud, it was set for a grandstand occasion on the Dalmatian coast. Few knew at the start how dramatic it would be. Hajduk brought themselves on terms early. A corner would be knocked down by the Sparta defence in the centre of the box, and Ivan Gudelia would be there to hammer it home on 18 minutes. The remainder of the first half would continue with mostly aerial bombardment from both sides, the best chance falling to Sparta when a header was aimed straight at the keeper with the goal gaping. Hajduk would start the second half throwing away a golden opportunity, as Ive Yarolimov was found in acres of space and... I have to admit, pulled off one of the worst shots you will ever see at the worst possible time. It meant the game would go into extra time as Hajduk got well on top without ever producing that clear-cut chance. The first chance to win the game in extra time would go to Sparta, a diving header at the back post hitting the wrong part of the head and floating sideways to a clearance rather than onwards to victory. Both sides would fashion half chances in the second half of extra time right up to the 119th minute. Sparta would concede a foul outside the box in their right-back area. Vlad Sliskovic would spot poor positioning from the goalkeeper and would whip in a low ball to the near post that would skid past the keeper and send Hajduk to the UEFA Cup semi-finals at the death. Their opponents, after a 4-2 aggregate win over Austria-Vienna, would be Tottenham Hotspur. The other semi-final, it's worth noting, was blighted by match-fixing. After Anderlecht paid off the referee in the second leg of their tie against Nottingham Forest, Hajduk Spurs would have its own off-the-field intrigue, albeit in one of the most bizarre fashions possible, and it would result in a staging ban for Hajduk. 
Hyduk fan and Torcida member Anthony Barabas had had a few drinks and he was irritated by what he saw as a superior attitude from the English side. He knew that the symbol of Spurs was of course the cockerel which is on the badge of the club. As such he did what any reasonable person would do in the situation. He stole the cockerel, snuck onto the pitch before kickoff, and snapped its neck in the centre of the pitch. Amazingly, he would manage to get back into the crowd and kept his silence for the following 28 years, finally being revealed in 2012 by his own admission. Hyduk would be fined and have to play their European ties the following season at least 350 kilometres away from Split. After the uh, chicken sacrifice, the game itself didn't start well for Hyduk. They conceded a penalty for handball, and while Mark Falco's spot, spot kick would be saved, and the follow-up saved as well, Spurs would deliver the ball back into the box, and Falco would eventually get his goal at the third attempt, diverting an errant shot into the back of the net. From there, it would mainly be Hyduk on the front foot. A Siskovic corner would end up hitting the post, while Siskovic himself would have a good-headed chance that he would direct more or less straight at the keeper. It remained 1-0 Spurs into the second half, with Hyduk entering that period creating only half chances until Ivan Gudelia prodded home from a scramble in the box after a corner with a deflected shot that left the keeper with no chance. Ten minutes later, Hyduk pressure would push Spurs defence at a corner once more and Poljud was rocking. Sliskovic put the ball in deep and a header back across Skull ended up with Dusan Pesic able to head in from about a yard. Spurs were hanging on. Pesic was sent through and sent a golden chance straight at the keeper. Another set piece would nearly result in a goal, but that would be it. Hyduk, albeit dominant in the later periods of the game, would take only a 2-1 lead to White Hart Lane. In London, their good work at home would be undone quickly. A handball outside the box would be struck in from the free kick by Mickey Hazard. And it would be Spurs who would keep getting the good chances, with Hyduk mainly reduced to shooting from distance. With the best chance being from a bizarre free kick that would be hammered down the keeper's throat, spilled onto his own bar, and then eventually smothered by the Tottenham keeper under pressure from Zoran Vujovic. Into the second half, and Pesic would have a great chance to equalise, rounding the keeper, but seeing his shot cleared off the line by Robertson. As Hyduk pressed, Spurs pushed them on the counter, Archibald spurning the best chance to put the tie to bed. But away goals would eventually be the decider, and Spurs would go on to win the final on penalties over Anderlecht. Hyduk, under the management of the man who saved their 60s in Petar Nedavisa, almost got to a final that would have defined their 80s. But next time on the podcast, we stray away from Split, as we find that for one season at least, the entire balance of Yugoslav football would tip to one unlikely city, Sarajevo. Thank you for listening. Um, this is our first episode of 2021, so I do hope everyone listens have a great Christmas and New Year. Um, obviously, if you do want to uh, leave reviews, please do on uh whichever podcast service it is for you use um, or, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Timo Mouse um, with uh, 
plenty of news as to what's going on in the current uh, state of Yugoslav football. Um, we'll be doing um, a couple of update episodes um, over the coming weeks. Um, probably Croatia will be next, given that the season there restarts uh, on the 19th. Um, whereas Slovenia, the other nation that we haven't done to this point, um, doesn't restart until uh, I think the 20th of February. Um, so we've got a bit of time for that. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening. I will catch you next time.